0: Hello and welcome to Coronavirus: The Whole Story. I'm Vivian Parry, a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna, and the person lucky enough to be your guide to UCL's extraordinary and wide-ranging research on coronavirus. In this week's episode, we're focused on homeschooling, and even as I said it, I swear I felt a collective shudder sweep through the capital. Many of our listeners are academics who are used to teaching, But getting your own kids through not just one lesson, but a whole day, a whole week, a whole three months is something else altogether. Let's face it, for many of us, getting them out of their pyjamas is a big deal. Never mind grappling with the French vocab. It's a recipe for battles, tantrums and downright misery, and all on top of our own punishing work schedules, anxieties and needs for Wi-Fi. At a deeper level are our fears that our children are falling behind academically, socially and physically, becoming demoralised and unhappy. So we thought it was time to bring in the cavalry, three experts from UCL who can offer some tips and tricks to those who need it. And let's face it, that's all of us. My first guest this week is Professor Lorraine Schur. Lorraine is Professor of Clinical and Health Psychology in the Department for Infection and Population Health and Head of the Health Psychology Unit, She's got a very varied research portfolio that encompasses many different elements of health care and access, which has informed her policy work with the WHO. Currently, Lorraine is part of the initiative to provide COVID-19 parenting tips, working with UNICEF, WHO, USAID and the Global Challenges Research Fund. I'm also joined by Dr Sandy Leeton gray an Associate Professor of Education at the IOE. Sandy is an Applied Sociology of Education specialist whose research has covered everything from education professionalism to the knowledge economy to AI in education. And last but not least, I'm joined by Professor John Potter. John is Professor of Media in Education in the UCL Knowledge Lab and a founder member of the DARE Collaborative, a research partnership focused on the digital arts in education. He's a former primary school teacher and is now a member of the Research Committee of the UK Literacy Association and an Executive Committee member of the Media Education Association, which supports media educators. So let's start by hearing how homeschooling is affecting children. Sandy, and I, I, I'm thinking as I'm just saying this, how different it is. But how different is homeschooling for uh, kids than school schooling?
1: Well, there's a number of things that we found out in our research projects, uh, talking to children, teachers, and parents about this. One thing that strikes us is that suddenly the education experience is very fragmented. So. You know, you just can't make assumptions about what's happening anywhere and who's doing the same as whom. And so that's a factor. We're hearing a lot about the difficulties of broadband. So even if people are spending quite a lot of money on their technology at home, they're not always able to access everything online that they need to, and that's very fragmented across the country. And We're hearing about the psychological battles that are going on, um, and parents not quite knowing where the line between being a parent and being a teacher is anymore, and having trouble encouraging their children to the light when it comes to, to applying themselves to work. Conversely, some children are spending ridiculous amounts of time online, my youngest, it seems, is spending, last week spent 79 hours online, according to the little report wow. that's generated uh, in, in some special software for us. Now, I don't think he was actually hard at it that uh, for the whole period. I think there was a lot of Minecraft going on in socialisation. <laughs> but it's not a great way to spend uh, your youth. And it, indeed, it's not very good for your fitness either. So, you know, there's really big questions there and uh, questions about simple things like daylight exercise, um, general socialisation skills, and and a really strange thing that children are starting to become a little bit afraid of having conversations with people outside their family groups. They're becoming a bit more afraid of even little things like going down to the shop. Um, and they're worried that, you know, they're, they're sort of losing these skills. So it's something we all need to be aware of.
0: And I'm guessing for parents, actually, there's a lot of anxiety about helping kids with their work because you know there are lots of areas that people don't feel very confident in, uh, maths, for example.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a qualified teacher and I've taught different age groups before I went into academia. And I have to say, I found it incredibly daunting to try to think up and deliver some kind of coherent programme without the support of colleagues and without really knowing... Um, what kids had done before and what comes next and so on, in subjects outside my immediate area, which was music originally. And and I found it horrendous. And I I remember sitting there last spring thinking, I don't know how people are coping if they haven't had any training and they haven't got the sort of bigger picture stuff that you accumulate as part of going through a PGCE teacher training course. Now, I think it's got a little better because um, teachers have have upskilled In quite a dramatic and impressive manner um, in how to flex to deliver things online and make the most of the resources that are there and do some live teaching things like that and uh, it's it's been really extremely impressive what they've managed to do whilst maintaining a kind of class esprit de corps where everybody is getting along together and making a contribution so um, full credit to them, and that takes a little bit of pressure off parents. But just plonking children in front of a computer and having one live lesson after another all day isn't really the solution either. We need to think about ways of embedding that into the, the children's deeper consciousness, if you like. And I think that's what parents worry about: that you know, there's activity going on, but it's the thoroughness that they worry about, and whether this will be durable and whether this will help their children build on other things as they move forward. But I I think my advice to parents is just chill about it, because there's absolutely nothing we can all do. (laughs) And I think anybody that manages to get the household showered once a day and put food in them and it hasn't kicked off deserves a medal.
0: The other thing, of course, that we've all discovered is, oh, my goodness me, we put teachers on pedestals. I mean respect to teachers I mean actually, <laughs> it's, we've actually. all discovered just how hideous it can be trying to trying to you know din something into your uh, into your child who doesn't want to learn and and actually acts up because there's you know there's not the pressure of peers or the school environment and they can behave really badly so Lorraine What's this done for parents? Or what's it not done for parents, I should say? Well,
2: you know, I think you have to be a little bit upbeat about it because you say you can upskill teachers, you can upskill parents and you can upskill students. Also remember that creativity is the best tool and you can learn through play. You can learn in very many different ways. And I suppose the issue to parents is to relax a little bit and to remember that the most important thing they can give their child is not homeschooling or computer time. It's their time, one-on-one time. You can do enormous amounts with it.
0: Uh, The other side of that is, of course, we're all working. And I, I mean, all these people who say, well, when we get back to work, and most of us are thinking, I've never worked so blooming hard in all my life. And I think, <laughs> and so I think that that's a real pressure for parents when both parents are working, both want the Wi-Fi or just in single parent households where there's a key work meeting going on and the children are kicking off in the next room. And it's, it's really difficult.
1: It's intolerable, isn't it? And I think it's really an exaggerated form of something that people have been feeling at the edges for a long time, you know, that we've not got the extended family support and structure in a lot of instances throughout society now. And parents are increasingly left on their own to try and be all things to all people. And We've got a really exaggerated form of it now. And I, I just think the only thing you can do is survive. and and look forward to the summer at the moment.
0: I was on a call with uh, a big call uh, in a a major meeting and a teenage uh, came in and kind of patted her dad on the shoulder and he kept on kind of motioning her away. And eventually she stood at the door of the room and just (laughs) shouted, Dad, the cooker's on fire! (laughs) 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 And and, and off he disappeared. (laughs) but the
2: intrusiveness of the camera into our into our world and our ability to play the work home um, game has been really ruptured and it's quite amusing at times
1: I, I love it, though, Cliff. I love it because I think that for a long time, women in particular have had to pretend that they haven't got a home life um, and that it's all seamless and happening somewhere else. And the idea that, that everybody's admitted, it's like coming out of the closet, isn't it, as a nation or a society. We've admitted we have children and we have houses and this is what they look like and this is what people do. And it's been quite liberating, actually. When it's not all falling apart, it's liberating. And
0: not always very clear. <laughs> John, I want to come to you because uh, there are so many competing messages about online learning. I mean, we've already heard there that worries about the number of hours because we're told on the one hand that children shouldn't be on screens all the time. But on the other hand, that that's the only way they can they can learn at the moment. What do parents actually need to know about online learning?
3: I think, well, if I rewind a little bit, Vivian, and, and ask about on-screen use, because I think that there is a concern about masses of on-screen use, obviously, but I would counsel against thinking that it's all one thing in the same way that online learning is not all one thing. On-screen use isn't all one thing. I mean, Sandy gave a very nice pen portrait of all of the different things that her child was doing. And uh, some of that might have been creative and playful. Some of it might have involved socialising when they can't do any other kind of socialising. And some of it might have been not good and eye straining. So concern is understandable, but I I would ask for a bit more nuance in the debate. I mean, again, just as Sandy was asking for when she was talking about the, the negativity angle, which is children are falling behind. I mean, imagine if you did not live in a house with good Wi-Fi, if you had four kids in a tower block somewhere and every time you turned on the TV someone pointed out to you that your children were falling behind they may in fact be inventing new games and play playful activities they may be being creative they may be finding ways to cope themselves and so that's one of the reasons why we're doing a a COVID-19 project on children's play during this time but yeah my main point here is to say uh, be a little bit more nuanced in the debate
0: yeah and I think it goes Back to what we're saying is you can't do anything about this. You have to chill. You can't stress about it. And actually, yeah. children are quite resilient. Mm. They, they're having a very bad time and perhaps amongst the worst affected of those by the pandemic. But they are resilient and more so than we think.
3: Yes. And we think that some of this is down to their ability to still be playful and to make up new ways of, of, of playing games, whether, whether it's a kind of Zoom hide-and-seek thing with family members if they're lucky enough to be on Wi-Fi and have Zoom. But there are other ways that they can play with each other during times in the outside and exercising safely. And we also think that there's interesting variations of games that they used to play when they've gone back to school and been in bubbles. They've been very creative about the way that they've played in bubbles and inventing playground games that don't involve touch, shadow tag and all of this kind of thing. And children are amazingly creative and resilient. Our project seeks to create a play observatory, which we're hoping to launch in the next few weeks, which will allow parents and children to document some of the ways that they have been being resilient and playful and and enjoying aspects of this situation, bizarre as that might sound. And we're going to invite contributions for them in the form of videos or drawings or anecdotes, audio, and we're going to collect them in an archive in much the same way as Peter and Iona OP documented children's play over about 30 or 40 years. So we've got a great team of um, children's historians and archivists and we're conducting a kind of a mixture of a social science project where we're looking at what they're doing and an archival record of this time for the future, which will be located in the British Library, amongst other places so we're quite excited about that.
0: I hope you gathered some of those snaps of kids playing in the snow just a couple of days ago, where they were not building snowmen, but they were building these huge snowballs with sticks all over them to be coronaviruses.
3: Yes, (laughs) yes, it's wonderful, isn't it? We've seen that, and we've also seen pavement drawings, chalk drawings of the same kind of thing, and my colleague Kate Cowan, is a real expert on children's play and she's been tweeting out all sorts of examples that she's found, including, I don't know if you saw a clip on Twitter the other day, of of toddlers going up to objects in the environment and pretending to sanitise their hands. (laughs) (laughs) This kind of thing is the sort of thing that we want to collect for for posterity, this resilience and making something of of a difficult situation that that children are engaged with.
0: So We've established that our children are not entirely wrecked yet and that actually as parents, there's not so much that we can do. Uh, You know, anxiety and stress about it is going to get us nowhere. So what I'm going to concentrate on absolutely now is advice and tips. Let's go to you first, Lorraine. Can you tell us about parenting resources that you've been developing for WHO and UNICEF?
2: Well, it's been a very exciting initiative right at the beginning. We sort of woke up and thought, my gosh, we need these. And we were able to get UNICEF, WHO, USAID, a large group under... Um, the parenting for lifelong health and our idea was that we should have evidence-based interventions not just knee-jerk and what we think and there is great evidence I mean you, you hear what John and Sandra are describing with good trials that parenting can be taught lots of things can be taught and we just take for granted that you don't teach it so we put together in the first instance six and then 12 parenting tips and very straightforward very simple based on evidence and um they've just gone very viral we've had over 130 million hits and yeah and um all over the world and we've just um had a um a piece of research to try and look at how Um, how they've been received, and from Paraguay uh, to Malawi, from South Africa to Israel, UK, all across the globe, we found their utility, and parents are grateful. Very often you know how to parent, but you need permission, so there's a lot of prompting and permission that comes in with these tips. A lot of reminders on things you sort of know and you give up when you're frazzled and little learning things like, you know, if you don't make the rules, they will. Children love to ask questions that you don't want to answer. Painting on paper is really much better than painting all over the wall. Just some general advice about taking some deep breaths. Take five of them before you're about to shout. um, And it's amazing how people can be prompted, reminded and little small things, it can just help, it can really help.
0: What about if parents are tempted to steer off piste in terms of the school curriculum? You may know, or certainly the the listeners will know, Mark Miodovnik, who I think had got his children involved in a whole materials (laughs) uh, course for school, which wasn't on the curriculum. Andrea Seller was the same. And how anxious should parents be about sticking to those kind of things that are on the school curriculum? Or can they do something that's playful and and different without
1: worry? I think that depends, doesn't it? You know, it, 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 it depends really whether you've got good communication with the school, whether it's joining up to something that went before and that's going to follow on. Because if you go completely off the subject for everything with no communication with the school, and it's very hard to then reform, isn't it? So I think you have to decide whether your child is learning at home but still registered with a school. Or whether you're you're actually homeschooling, and they're separate things, and you have to be a little bit mindful of of the sort of teachers needing to track and build and make sure that they're you know if they're going to be accountable for your child's learning, then then there needs to be a, a decent homeschool relationship underpinning that.
0: And sticking to the syllabus, of course, is is more important as children get older and towards exam times. I mean, you can't say I never liked mice and men much. Let's let's do something else
2: learning is like building, step building and brick building and foundation building. So the curriculum is important for the next steps, but there's wider, there's more to learning than just the curriculum. And I think it's really important for a child to learn something than to learn nothing. And we do have to have some flexibility in these very strange times.
3: Yeah, I would agree with everything that's been said so far. And I would say that the curriculum is embedded in all sorts of activities that it doesn't appear to be at first. If you were to take a project of making a film through a day, you've got negotiation with time, you've got planning, you've got scripting, you've got acting, you've got actively thinking about the language that you use. A one-minute documentary about something that you're actually doing would be a fantastic way of, of playing and also encountering aspects of the curriculum which would, you know, not at first sight appear to be embedded in the activity. I think that we we underestimate how children experience time as well. A day is a really long time for a child. And there is very, I mean, if we are after tips, it is not possible for a child to sit in front of a screen. Um, It's difficult enough as an adult, but to do that for hour after hour after hour and expect to be, you know, learning and absorbing information. So my top tip would be to get people away and to be active, to return to the screen with something to show for the time they've been away from the screen. And of course, with my research hat on, I would encourage people to, when it opens, to contribute to the play observatory because in doing creative activity around showing people the kinds of play that you've been doing, you will be doing curriculum activity, constructing expressive sentences. You'll be be making something that is of value to your schooling anyway.
2: Also really important to know that there's more to school than the curriculum, all yeah. the extracurricular activities. And we that would be a worry. A lot of children are stopping those and those are really fundamental to growing. You know, Music and dancing and sport and football and outward bound stuff and learning how to tie knots and not just about in, it, it within the curriculum, but also remember that they're learning IT skills that they
1: probably could never get at school. Tick off what they are doing as opposed to worrying about what they're not. Yeah, and then there's the there's the moments in between hands. So the, it, it is a massively important point about the the what we call the extended curriculum, where you're you're going beyond the subjects and and doing you know more interesting and deeper and and complex things. And you know we need to be thinking forward a little bit so that when there are when there's restrictions being lifted for a short while because infection levels go down, it's really important that parents go out as much as they can and experience as much as they can with the kids in terms of being able to get out and about and do trips and go to parks and look at things and do things. And that will have a a sort of enhanced benefit because there's been so little of that going on. So there'll be a new appreciation of that. And that will backfill a lot of the other difficulties.
0: Let's Break this down into the to kind of age groups. John, with your primary school experience, what about primary school age children? I mean, you've already mentioned that giving them breaks from the screen.
3: I think opportunities to um, explore their environment, to bring things back to the screen. Could they make something that they can show? Could they go and write a message that they hold up to the screen? So they're not typing or, or making something you know, of, of that kind of nature into this, in the this screen with primary school children when you think about it that one of the things that is most difficult for them and it does come across whenever there's a news feature on it for example is the social aspect of of what's being lost there was an interview on the BBC news last night in the school I think it was in Warrington and one of the the children in in shot said it's okay I can learn at home it's not great I I much prefer learning at school but one of the things I miss is is my friend's So are there ways that you can connect friends, smaller groups in in conversations? Are there ways that you can organise it? Are there ways that you can discuss with the school how that could be organised, where friendship groups could work together? I think the importance of children being able to chat to each other about what it is they're doing, that's one of the big losses of, of this particular situation. If you think about a primary school classroom, so that idea of the social world of the child, is there some way that we could recreate that? using the, the the technology and you know when they go back in it's immense the kind of outpouring of of friendship that there is and then suddenly it's it's taken away again that would be a a, a thing to aim at is there some way we could do that
0: Lorraine what about? the other end and uh, teenagers because this has all happened at a time when uh, teenagers are pretty difficult to handle at home uh, at the best of times you know love them though we do they there's a lot of flouncing and door slamming and, uh, and and all of that and they're really really suffering I think at the moment from not having their friends around how can we best cope with teens
2: Teen, teens are are, are wonderful. And we have to focus on a sort of teen agency, not so much as teen problems, because they don't all flounce. Some of them are amazing. And in fact, some of them put their flouncing to music and we call it dancing. So we have to kind of understand much of the disaster is about their loss of opportunity, their diversion of life plans. We've taken away, slipped from under their feet, things like targeting, so their exams are disappearing, their opportunity is fizzling out. So I think you do need to have some creativity um, with with teens. And I would actually start by asking them. I think we're so busy telling everyone else what to do, we should get a little bit cleverer about listening. Our work is global, so we look across the world. And things to be wary of um, with with the teenage population globally is some of the old problems like gender issues. A group in Kenya are reporting that when they reopen schools, many girls are not coming back. Um, They've either gone off, um, lost the will, lost the support, or had early marriages. So we have to look at that. Other issues globally are about teens just getting their act together we've seen teens selling masks creating interventions so in this country we just have to keep a very open mind and be very patient and we should be guided by a positive constructive approach rather than wringing hands of despair
0: and we should give a big huzzah for their genius creativity on uh, TikTok. I'm just in awe. So now, as it happens, I'm interviewing Michael Spence, the new provost of UCL in the next couple of weeks. And one of the things that I wanted to put to him was all these kids will need to have catch up you know, they will really need to get all that, not only the socialising, but catch up with individual bits of work that they've really got behind on. And I wondered whether and how the UCL community could play a part in doing that for uh, school students in the, in the Camden area. What about that as a thought, anyone? Perhaps uh, go to Sandy on that. How are we going to help children catch up?
1: I think we've all got to be very honest as a society about the need, the need for resits and the the need for free resits, and the need to have second and third goes at things, and that was kind of dying out. And there was this sort of moral value ascribed to whether you could pass an exam first time off and without extra help. And I think that's all got to go. And so when we're looking at uh, courses that we run and outreach that we do, we can do a lot to help subject teachers um, really enrich and extend the knowledge of the young people on their courses and also support then being able to leap over the educational hurdles that we, saw, we have there because we have to have some kind of filtering to, to get people onto different life parts. But I think we just have to be very accepting of the fragmentation that's gone on and just to do our best to try and fill in the gaps a little bit there.
0: Lorraine, is there anything in that that we all need to pile in to help kids as much as we can?
1: Well, I
2: think we could get a bit strategic. So we should think big. So for example, thousands or hundreds of thousands of teachers all across the country are repeating the same lesson, makeshift, having to prepare, it's all going out on video. Why don't we have the curriculum with the most brilliant, you know, the David Attenborough standard of content, and then you can use the teaching As a discussion and dialogue, instead of having to have millions of small little responses, I think we could think big and have a much more strategic way of approaching how we impart information, the quality of what we do, and a different way of doing it.
1: I think I think teachers do that though. I mean they're very used to drawing on existing re- resources. They're not sitting there making, you know, hundreds of thousands of micro videos when there's something that they can draw upon, show young people and then discuss. And I think there's a real danger in having these monolithic, if you like, uh, televisual models of learning um, and holding up the experts and then saying, you see, these people really know what they're doing. And teachers fall in behind them. Teachers are very, very highly trained professionals who are good at knowing what's going on in school with that group of people at that time at the chalk face. Jamie's dream school uh, that was on television was an example of where it can go horribly wrong. It's not enough to just stand there knowing something about a subject and then expecting that you get all the follow through and the richness that you get from a highly trained professional tailoring and and tweaking and and that sort of thing. So I think we have to be very nervous.
0: John, what about catch up and lots of people outside the school communities really piling in to help uh, children?
3: I think that's a great idea. I, I think I'd also go with Sandy on the, the need for some structural support around that. In other words, removing some of the structure around that. If you tell someone they're falling behind, what are they falling behind? Let's be honest about assessment. Let's be honest about the curriculum at this time and relieve some of the pressure. And uh, I applaud that idea of of, uh, of the of the resets. I thought the Rain's point uh, previously about valuing what teenagers and others bring to the party, I think... Can we create spaces in which we can have more participant-led research? When we've previously researched children's playground games before the pandemic, Kate and I created, and so did our Sheffield colleagues Julia and Jackie, created situations in which children reported on their own lives. And that requires a degree of organisation and thought and a huge range of communicative skills. And so a participant co-production of research into their own lives, I think... Creating projects where children can make those kinds of videos, can make those sorts of contributions and talk about what it is they've been doing, what it is they've been playing and what their aspirations and hopes are. Combined with some relaxation of this pace, 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 assess, assess, assess curriculum that we have now. Maybe it's a chance to reform schooling.
1: There's a really good term that we talk about with students. Uh, It comes from Basil Bernstein and he used the term The symbolic ruler for the way that we measure young people against each other in these age cohorts to see whether they're ahead of time or behind time. And then we talk about whether this is good or bad. And I think this is the thing that we have to ditch and we have to start looking at the learning that's going on and not measuring children quite so intensively.
0: So we're getting to the end of our time now, and I wanted to give you each my magic wand. Now, I hand it out very liberally and generously at the end of uh, these podcasts. And I'm going to give you each my magic wand and ask you what one thing would you do with your wand to help people homeschooling at the moment? And by the way, money is no object. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with Lorraine. What would you do?
2: Oh well, I'm. I don't. I don't believe in magic. So I think I would have to say, you know, you, it's just about human endeavour, children's creativity. Don't dream. Be real. So I find it very difficult to think that we could have a, a magic bullet to fix all of this. But what we should be able to do is to pause, to listen, to support, give positive praise. If I was to give one thing, I would say, you know. 20 minutes of total attention um, to a child, Um, that's not magic,
0: that's just real. Fantastic. Sandy, how about you?
1: Well, I've been working with different stakeholders and MPs and so on across the country to try and unpick the whole broadband problem. We've been doing this for about three years now and it's been quite frustrating. So what I'm doing, I'm plugging that magic wand into the national grid and I'm linking linking it up to all 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 the infrastructure for broadband everywhere and it's now supercharged and everybody's got 300 megabytes all the time.
0: What, even if everyone's playing Fortnite?
1: Even if they're playing Fortnite. And by the way, we've had a, you know, we've had a, like some people have plagues of locusts and frogs and things. We've had a plague of laptops. They've come down, there's laptops everywhere and you just help yourself.
0: <laughs> right, plagues of laptops and uh, national grid and broadband uh, everywhere. John, how about you?
3: Okay, well, that's interesting. I might've gone for that, Sandy. So you've, you've gone for the materiality of it. I'd go for some kind of idea I would actually like to just wave away the pressure and the negativity that comes out of the media on parents and on teachers equally, but differently, and sometimes seeks to divide them. So I would get rid of all of that. And instead, I would wave in trust, empathy, pausing and talking to your children and with them, and a and the sort of nuance to the debate. It's so polarised at the moment, and it doesn't help anybody. So I would wave away the negativity.
0: Well, I think those are three absolutely magnificent suggestions i did notice that sandy got away with suggesting two things but we'll let her off because they were they were both very splendid thank you all three of you you've been uh, so helpful and i would just say to parents don't stress about this you know th- there are things sometimes that you can't change and if you try and change them and they're unchangeable, all you'll end up doing is getting in a bigger and bigger state of anxiety. And it's happening to everyone. So I think that's helpful. It's not just happening to you. So remember that. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the very splendid Karis Bradley. I was joined today by Professor Lorraine Scher, Dr Sandy Leeton gray and Professor John Potter. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. I hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now.